Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And Tracy, uh, I would like to start this one with a personal question to you, which is, what is the longest your hair has ever been? Oh, it has been pretty, like, midway down my back is the longest. And that's about the longest that it will grow. It was probably not quite that long. (laughs) I was always very envious of my cousin Missy, who had this, like, beautiful, beautiful, long, long hair when we were children. Um, I learned much later that it was just a terror to, to manage. Yeah, I had very long hair when I was quite young, and my dad... Uh, really liked long hair and little girls. My mom kept threatening to cut it and he kept saying don't. And she finally had had it and said, fine, then you're responsible for taking care of her hair. And to his credit, bless his heart, he did. My dad was the one that shampooed and brushed and like dealt with my hair. <laughs> but then when I got older, I went through a hippie phase, like in college, and it grew very long, about, you know, butt length. Mm-hmm. But now I could never manage anything like that. Yeah. However. And mine just genetically will not get that long. I shudder to think at how long mine would get. Although it's not terribly pretty. Like, long hair is not (laughs) always pretty. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't retain its, like, resiliency and its luster. You have natural oxidation as it grows out, so the ends tend to be more brittle. But the people we are talking about today had crazy long hair. Uh, We're talking about the Sutherland sisters. They were Sarah, Victoria, Isabella, Grace, Naomi, Dora, and Mary Sutherland. And these ladies were all... Really capable musicians. They all sang and played in, played instruments, uh, and they had a stage act. But th- their fame was really not about their music so much. That played a part, but really, it was all about their incredible hair. So we're going to talk about them today, and we will start with sort of their early life with their parents and kind of how they became stage children. So they were born in the years that spanned from 1845 and 1865, and their parents were Mary and Fletcher Sutherland. This family had a turkey farm in Cambria, New York. And while they, I mean, they got by, but they were definitely poor. And the girls really did a lot of work on the farm, helping to take care of the turkeys. Yeah, you'll hear various accounts of them kind of like barefoot and really raggedy clothes, kind of running around the turkey yard trying to care for things. And, uh... But they always had this incredible hair from a very early age. And while that was almost definitely due, at least in some degree, to genetics, their mother may have told a different story about it because she was a big fan of ointment. Uh, and she would treat the girl's hair with this ointment that she concocted that apparently smelled awful uh, because she believed that it was giving them these long, strong, lustrous locks, like the kind of stuff that you would normally hear in modern ad campaigns. But she was doing it with this really stinky ointment. The smell of this concoction was so bad that their classmates were always teasing the girls and they would all hide whenever somebody came to the house rather than, you know, stand around talking about how bad their mother's hair treatment smelled. But they did all have very long, thick hair. Yeah, so whether the ointment played a part or not, we don't really know. But, uh, so their father, Fletcher Sutherland, was really not a farmer by trade. He had inherited that turkey farm property from his father, uh, Colonel Andrew Sutherland, who was a man of some renown. Uh, so from 1839, though, to 1845, Fletcher 
worked as a minister in the Methodist Episcopal Church. And after that, he moved into politics. He kind of parlayed his ability to speak in front of a crowd and eventually worked as a speaker during President James Buchanan's 1856 campaign. But even more than politics, what Fletcher really focused on once he left the ministry was the girls. He'd already included them in church performances as singers from the time they were really young, basically toddlers. But he had really bigger dreams for them than singing during church services. Uh, Fletcher's wife, Mary, actually died of dropsy in 1867, and she was only 43 at the time. And at this point, their youngest daughter, who was actually also named Mary, was still very small. Uh, accounts vary, but you'll see Mary listed as either two or three years old, so still a toddler at this point. And it's at this point that Fletcher had all of his children. At this point, they had the seven daughters, and they also had one son, Charles, who was born kind of in the middle of all the girls, uh, really step up their musical act. So he made the kids learn to play instruments as well as sing, and he started taking them on tours around the county. And so they would make appearances in churches, they would uh, be at small theaters, they would sing at fairs. And Naomi, who was 13 at the time that this really started rolling, and she was fifth in uh, birth order of the girls, was the most talented singer. And so she really garnered some pretty great reviews as a standout of the family as they kind of started to bolster their image. Over the course of the years from 1867 to 1880, the touring territory of the family got bigger and bigger, and the girls changed as well. Mary was no longer around to douse their hair with really stinky ointment, but their hair did continue to grow, and their long locks became the trademark of their act. During their performances, the young women would unfurl their braids and reveal how long and incredible their hair was. And eventually their hair really started to eclipse their music when people talked about their show. Charles actually stopped uh, taking the stage with his sisters so they could start appearing as the Seven Wonders. And I found uh, online an image of a handbill from this time advertising the Sutherland's act, and it kind of cracked me up and was wonderful. And it read, Matchless, incomparable, seven Sutherland sisters, seven wonders of the world, seven long-haired sisters, seven songsters, seven eccentric ladies, seven accomplished musicians, seven refined and educated ladies, seven sisters, all of one family, seven models of beauty and womanly grace, seven ladies with 49 feet of hair, seven feet of hair each, Seven ladies with hair four inches thick. The Sutherland sisters entertain visitors with music afternoon and evening. The That's part about, the funniest handbill ever. <laughs> yeah, the, the part about seven sisters all of one family really makes me laugh because, like, where else would seven sisters be from? Like, just borrowed from other families where they had different <laughs> sisters who weren't related to each other? I don't know. Well, that's- that's going to come up a little bit more in a minute. But the thing that cracked me up the most is that they say seven re- eccentric ladies and then two lines later, seven refined and educated ladies. Uh, it's just, it's very, they wanted to catch all. Anything that might attract a crowd got included in that one handbill. Yeah. So despite the fact that 49 feet of hair was not entirely accurate, I mean, that would mean all seven of them had hair that was seven feet long. The Seven Wonders really took off, and in December of 1880, the sibling troupe made its debut on Broadway. The following year, Fletcher took his family on the road to travel through more of the United States, and he took numerous stops in the South, including the International Cotton Exposition in Atlanta. 
Yeah, that's almost always when you read uh, any of the accounts about the girls, they talk about that stop like it was a really important thing. And I, I am embarrassed to admit, I don't know about the International Cotton Expo very much, which is kind of shameful since I live in Atlanta, but it always sounds like it was, this was a big engagement. Uh, and so Tracy had just mentioned that they didn't all have seven feet of hair each. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, while the ladies all had massive amounts of hair, they were not really all equals in the hair game any more than they were equally gifted musically. We said earlier that Naomi was really the standout singer. So the shortest hair belonged to Sarah, who was the oldest girl. Uh, her hair was only, and I have to use the air quotes there, there, a yard long. So it was a little less than a meter. On the other end of the spectrum was uh, her sister Victoria, who was second oldest, and she had the longest hair, which was seven feet in length, which is about 2.1 meters, and that's from root to tip. But added up amongst all of them, it is believed that they had closer to 37 feet or 11.3 meters of hair rather than 49, which would have been 14.9 meters. So they all had, there was three to four was the shortest, seven was the longest feet, and then everyone else kind of fell in the middle at varying lengths, kind of averaging around five to six. So all this hair obviously was very recognizable, and the sisters could not go out in public without just being mobbed. And some of their admirers even went so far as to try to sneak and snip a little lock of their hair away. Uh, Holly couldn't find any definitive accounts of whether any of them were successful in doing this, though. No, there were certainly accounts of like uh, people having offered some of them what were at the time huge sums of money to cut off all their hair so that they could have it. Uh, I think at one point uh, someone offered Victoria $2,500 to cut her hair and she turned it down. But all of this admiration and excitement that they were getting and generating started to attract a completely different sort of attention. And that was the eyes of agents, uh, people that promoted vaudeville and put together acts for vaudeville, as well as circus entrepreneurs And so the Seven Wonders actually became an act for the W.W. Cole's Colossal Shows in 1882, which they did for a little while. But then uh, by 1884, they had actually moved away from that company into Barnum and Bailey's greatest show on Earth. In their act with Barnum and Bailey, the ladies, who at this point ranged in ages from 18 to 36, wore all white. And they performed a series of songs before they'd let their hair down in this grand finale that would draw gasps from the crowd. And what's really interesting is that, you know, they were billed as a sideshow act. They were, uh, you know, what normally you'll even see them sometimes listed in lists of like famous freaks. But their performances were really perceived as being much more refined than most other circus acts. The ladies themselves were refined, uh, at least publicly. They would tell tasteful stories. They would sing church music. And people who normally viewed the circus as an entertainment for the lower classes started to be drawn to attendance by these lovely Sutherland women. They were very successful. And we're going to talk a little bit more about each of them after a brief word from a sponsor. So getting back to the ladies, we'll talk a little bit about each one individually. Uh, Sarah, being the eldest, she kind of naturally fell into the role of being the leader of the group. And she was a soprano. She was also a really strong piano player. And she used her natural musicality to teach for a little while before the act became a full-time endeavor. And she was also known for always carrying her Bible with her. Victoria sang mezzo-soprano parts, and she's generally described as the magpie of the sisters. She was the most obsessed with their clothing, 
and she was a big fan of having expensive baubles to wear. Yeah, and because she had the longest hair, she was kind of she kind of elevated to a certain revered status. So people kind of indulged her in her love of clothes and jewelry. Uh, Isabella, the third sister, was a tenor, and she's actually interesting. Uh, Tracy had mentioned earlier, like, of course they are all of the same family, but there have always been rumors that she wasn't actually Marion Fletcher's daughter, uh, because she really did not resemble the rest of the family, aside from the fact that she had long hair. And there's been some speculation that she was a cousin or even adopted from outside the family, There isn't solid substantiation for those theories. There is some kind of hints. Like I was looking through a a census record and it lists her place of birth as slightly different from the other girls, but it's like in the next county. So it's possible that she, uh, you know, it was just a records thing. A lot of people have theorized that she was actually the daughter of uh, Fletcher's sister, but we don't know for certain. Grace was an alto and maybe the most talkative of the group. She's the one who took on the role of negotiator, both in business and in family arguments. She also had auburn hair, which set her apart from her sisters, who all had brown or black hair. Uh, The next sister, Naomi, is always described as just really good humor. Uh, And as we mentioned earlier, she had the most praised voice of the group with a rich bass. She's sort of uh, always labeled as like the sweetheart. Uh, Dora was another alto and is routinely described as the most beautiful of all of them. She was also really personable, and she used her wit and her charm to great advantage. Her brains would also lead her to being a strong businesswoman as the family fortunes got bigger thanks to all their musical stuff. Yeah, and then uh, Mary, the youngest, uh, was also an alto like Dora, She was not, however, particularly gifted musically, and she was apparently a little bit difficult to deal with. She was prone to tantrums. Uh, It's believed she actually had some sort of mental illness, although the specific nature of it is not really clear. Uh, Allegedly, there were some doctors that theorized that her long hair actually contributed to her mental health issues in some way, either by just adding pressure to her head or causing her to hold her head oddly. It's not really... It's always one of those doctors think this. There's really no scientific basis for any of these rumors. Yeah, we I'm not a doctor, but was. that sounds like hokum to me. It does. Well, there were also some preachers that thought that her hair was somehow causing problems. It's a little fuzzy. It's one of those things you'll always read it as like the throwaway line in any description of Mary. Like, Mary had some mental problems. We're not sure what, but some doctors think her hair was too heavy for her head. And it's like that. I've never once seen any sort of medical literature <laughs> uh, that would substantiate that kind of claim. Uh, we were in the earliest days of evidence-based medicine at this point. So. Precisely. Hey, Tracy, do you want to pause at this moment and have a quick word from one of our sponsors? So when it came to the Sutherland girls, the the whole group and all of that hair was really greater than the sum of its parts. And while fans would often fixate on their favorite sister, it was the seven of them together as an act that really drew in all the crowds. So while all of this refined entertainment that the seven girls were performing was going on, their father Fletcher was hatching an entirely other money-making scheme behind the scenes. Uh, as early as 1882, he was investigating the possibility of developing a branded hair tonic that would capitalize on the popularity of his daughters and their hair. 
He concocted this tonic, which was allegedly based on his wife Mary's formula, which he sent to a chemist for analysis and endorsement. And the review that he got was quite good. And here is a quote. Cincinnati, Ohio, March 1884. Having made a chemical analysis of the hair grower prepared by the seven long-haired sisters, I hereby certify that I found it free from all injurious substances. It is beyond question the best preparation for the hair ever made. And I cheerfully endorse it. J.R. Duff, M.D., chemist. And this review, to me, is actually sort of hilarious because uh, later on, according to an entry in the drug periodical, The Pharmaceutical Era, which was published in 1893, so almost 10 years after this was going on, uh, they had had another group try to replicate this formula. And they determined that to do so, you just needed seven ounces of bay rum, nine ounces of distilled water of witch hazel, a drop of salt, a drop of 5% solution of hydrochloric acid, and magnesia as needed. So nothing especially magical was going on here. I look at that list and I go, that seems like it might be great if your hair was really oily, but for everyone else, right? That's gonna, that's stripper. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Cosmetics history. So weird. Uh, As all this was happening, the girl's father was having some difficulty getting this new venture off the ground, at least until Harry Bailey from the Barnum and Bailey circus family offered his help with the business. While the chemist was reviewing the tonic that Fletcher had sent over, Harry, who was dating Naomi Sutherland at that point, started the Sutherland Sisters Corporation, and he applied for a trademark for Seven Sutherland Sisters Hair Grower. And so once the proper paperwork was filed and the chemist had endorsed this product, the hair grower really started selling. And Harry was very good at kind of PR and pushing this product. And so the Sutherland Sisters Corporation sold about $90,000 worth of product in their first year. So as 1884 came to a close, they were starting to make a lot of money from this venture. The following year in 1885, Naomi married her suitor and business associate, Harry Bailey. So they also called this product hair fertilizer. And just a few years into the successful hair fertilizer business venture, Fletcher Sutherland died. This was on September 6th, 1888. And his obituary in the New York Times read, Fletcher Sutherland, the father of the seven Sutherland sisters, died at his country home near Lockport, New York, yesterday of paralysis. He was 73 years of age. He was a prominent Methodist minister at one time, but he left the pulpit as soon as his daughters took to the stage. And it's interesting because in some biographies that you look at or accounts of this, Fletcher is often characterized as kind of a skunk. Like they talk about how he is perfectly willing to exploit his children for money uh, and how, you know, he was this very pushy stage father. Um, so if that were the case, you might think that once he had died, the ladies might have pulled back from their life in the spotlight or these multiple tendrils of businesses that were starting to happen. But in fact, that was not the case at all. With Fletcher's passing, the Sutherland sisters inherited part of the company he had with Harry Bailey, and the cosmetics line afterward expanded considerably. They added a a scalp cleanser as well as a Sutherland sisters branded comb. Hair color was also offered in eight different shades, but they also branched out of offering just hair products and started selling face cream as well. Yeah, they offered some other uh, skin and facial 
products. They just kind of became bigger and bigger and bigger. And the Sutherland Sisters brand really employed an incredibly effective strategy to market all these products. So trading on the ladies' image that they had kind of established at this point of being refined and elegant, these products were priced fairly high for the time. So things would range from between 50 cents to $1.50. That was substantial in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And what this meant was that their target audience was theoretically wealthy ladies. But the price point was just at that level where... Uh, this made the cosmetics line incredibly desirable for less wealthy women. So they would spend probably more than they really should have in terms of budget so that they could also have these products. And so in short, this approach worked like a charm. It turned out that the women had incredible business sense. They came up with brilliant taglines for their products and they spent their time away from performing, bolstering their merchandise business by modeling their products. Because business was really booming, the company was also expanding into new territories, and they opened offices all over the United States and in Canada and Cuba. And at the company's peak, they had a sales force of more than 28,000 dealers. So this is a huge company at this point. The sisters were making millions from their products, and this was one of the most successful cosmetics companies in North America. So they continued to expand outside of just offering uh, hair and facial goods, they then started selling Sutherland Sisters memorabilia to create an entirely new revenue stream. So one of the things that they had was like uh, trading cards that featured each of the sisters and, you know, these cute little poses. And at one point, uh, Victoria did sell a single strand of her hair for $25 and a jeweler had bought it so that he could hang a diamond from the end of it in his shop window. At this point, they had a lot of money. And so they decided to build a, a new home back in Cambria where they had lived as children. So they built a really, really massive mansion, which housed the whole family, as well as providing a home office for their retail business. They spared no expense in the construction. And once everybody moved in, even the servants and the pets lived lives that a lot of other citizens in the area really could hardly imagine. This shift in their new mansion also marks a significant shift in the ladies' lives because they started to become progressively more and more eccentric. Yeah, they had always kind of been labeled as eccentric, partially, I imagine, because they're, they were just an unusual group, all of these women with all of this hair. and uh, But they really started to kind of live that life of wealthy captains of industry, like completely full of overindulgences. They would throw lavish events, these big parties for the neighborhoods and surrounding community, which always ended with spectacular fireworks. And the partying that they uh, got into, according to the rumors that were swirling at the time, uh, only got wilder when the guests actually went home. So gossip started to spread around Cambria and the Niagara Falls area that the family was into very heavy drinking, even some drug use, even some partner swapping. Uh, and there was even witchcraft mentioned about what might be going on at the mansion with this eccentric family when no one else was there. But in the middle of all this extravagant celebration of their wealth, there was tragedy. Naomi died suddenly in 1893, which really wasn't long after they had moved into the house. This left Harry and her three children behind, and she was only 39 years old at the time. The show had to go on, though. The sisters were still working for the circus, and they were making regular appearances, so they hired a replacement sister. After auditions were held, the job went to a woman with nine feet, uh, which is about 2.7 meters of hair, 
Her name was Anna Louise Roberts. Yeah, there are lots of really sort of disturbing stories about how the the family dealt with death. Apparently, they kept Naomi there in the house for quite some time while they were allegedly going to build her mausoleum. But something, we're not entirely sure what, went wrong with that. And the mausoleum never got built. And eventually, they had to just bury her in an unmarked grave. It's a little bit... And we're going to hear some more crazy how they dealt with the passing of others. Uh... The next major event, however, in the Sutherland's life only added to the rumors and speculations about them. Uh, it arrived in the form of a young man named Frederick Castlemaine, and he was from a wealthy family, and he was apparently Dora's suitor. But then somewhere along the line, something happened very quickly and shocked everyone, and he married her sister Isabella. And this was uh, scandalous for the obvious sudden romantic interest change, Again, this kind of fueled those rumors of partner swapping that had already been happening. But also because Isabella was more than a decade older than her new husband. In terms of odd behavior, Castlemaine really fit right in. He was a man given to extremes, and he had kind of a drug problem. He liked to shoot his gun from the front porch. And in addition to these foibles, uh, he also created more tragedy for the ladies when he committed suicide while he was traveling with them during one of their tours. Yeah, I saw one mention that he had overdosed on opium, but I was not able to get hard evidence on that. Uh, so that to me kind of opened a question mark of, wait, was that a suicide or was that an accidental overdose? It's usually mentioned as a suicide, uh, but we don't know 100% for certain. But just as with Naomi, instead of burying this young groom, the sisters first put him in a glass enclosure in the house so that they could see him and sing to him every day. He had not been embalmed at this point. Uh, and this went on for a little less than two weeks before the authorities stepped in because the neighbors were complaining about the horrible odor that was starting to come from the property. Uh, and Frederick was finally laid to rest in a very pricey mausoleum that they had built for him, which still stands today. And it houses not only Castlemaine's uh, remains, but also several of the sisters as well. And all of the women seemed really, really heartbroken at the loss of Frederick, but especially, of course, Isabella. And she mourned him very deeply for two full years. Another upheaval and loss followed close behind the loss of Mr. Castlemaine. Victoria finally got married in 1898 at the age of 50, and her new husband was only 19. So the marriage caused a huge rift between Victoria and the rest of the family. She and her new groom were not welcome in the family home, and she and her sisters were estranged right up until her own death in 1902. Yeah, so things are really starting to fall apart at this point. Uh, Isabella did remarry after her two years of mourning, again to a much younger man, this seems to be a theme with the ladies, uh, named Alonzo Swain. And at this point, she was 46 and he was 30. But this marriage did not seem to be an issue with the rest of her sisters and set off any sort of arguments the way Victoria's did. Like they'd done when Naomi died, they found a replacement for Victoria. Her name was Anna Haney, and she had six feet of hair. She was hired so the Sutherlands could continue their appearances. But at that point, the days were numbered for the group. In 1907, they concluded their work with Barnum and Bailey. And Mary, who, as we mentioned earlier, has had always had some mental illness that really isn't uh, properly documented, grew much worse after Victoria's death. And she was allegedly making threats against her sisters at some point. 
uh, at some points when she was particularly upset. And their way of handling this was to send her to her room and lock the door. So she was kind of just shut away. Isabella died in 1914. Uh, and then the eldest sister, Sarah, died in 1919. And unfortunately, there was also some social change happening that was kind of spelling the end. Because by that time, the trend of ladies cutting their hair in short bobs was on an upswing. And that basically spelled doom for a hair care retail business aimed at keeping very long tresses tidy and strong. In an effort to come up with another money-making opportunity, sisters Dora, Mary, and Grace traveled to California. They were hoping to sell their story to a motion picture studio, and it didn't work out. But to make matters worse, Dora died while they were traveling. She was killed in a car accident. Allegedly, her remains were never claimed because Grace and Mary were too short on funds to do it. Yeah, at this point, you know, the money was running out, uh... And the two remaining sisters who were unable to sustain anything even vaguely resembling the lifestyle that they had known in their heyday when they were spending money really willy nilly because it seemed like it was there was never an end to it. Uh, they had to abandon their mansion in 1931. And uh, unfortunately, it burned to the ground seven years later on January 21st of 1938. And one of the the real tragedies here is that it took most of the family records with it. So. When I say a lot of things, there are things that aren't substantiated. Probably there was some paperwork in that house that could have helped illuminate things, but uh, it is gone. And Mary actually died the year after the house burned. She, at that point, had been committed to an asylum. And Grace lived until 1946, but uh, she was completely destitute when she died and was buried in a potter's field. So while the Sutherland sisters have had a really wild ride in this really intense success for a while. In the end, it really kind of all fell apart and they were just as poor, if not more so than they had been when they started on a turkey farm. Wow. So I don't know if there's a good life lesson in there. (laughs) It's not to laugh at tragedy, but you know, I I don't, it's one of those things we see it happen all the time in, in modern era where performers become really, really popular and they make a lot of money. And then you hear later that they're completely broke and they, are a mess and can't pull their lives together. And this is not a new thing, it turns out. This is already happening all the time. Do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. This is from our listener, Gina, and it is about our Artemisia Gentileschi episode. And I am not reading the whole thing, but wanted to share some of her insights about uh, Artemisia's work. She uh, majored in painting and art history in college and really liked uh, Gentileschi, so she has some good insights. And she says, I really like the point she made about the culture she was painting in and the time in which she lived. But there are a few things I think could be added in. First, that Judith and Holofernes itself was a common subject matter among painters at the time. Second, that Artemisia's painting is rather more accurate in its depiction of the physical aspects, like blood spatter. While many artists of the time presented anatomically correct figures, they stylized the more gruesome details. Her depiction is more like real life than illustration or allegory. For me, this is where her experiences played a role in her work. She lived through real things, and the women she painted weren't props to tell a story. They were people with a history and life all their own. This is what makes her work so moving, this combination of great skill, great insight, and attention to detail. And then she talks a little bit about Caravaggio, but then I also really liked her uh, her postscript on this one. She says, I really enjoyed the letter to Galileo, speaking of that uh, plot point in the Artemisia Gentileschi episode. 
It inspired me to look up more about the scientific and political events of the time and think about them in connection with painting. I'm kind of blown away by how much was going on. Galileo's telescope observations, Kepler's law of planetary motion, early American colonies, and even the Dutch East India Company. I really have never thought about the broader context in which the Baroque artists lived, or even that Italy had just come out of a war with a ref- and a reformation and was mostly controlled by Spain. So thanks for the happy hours of research. I, too, love those moments of insight where you realize how connected these huge world events are with things that we're talking about and to each other that kind of get, I think, compartmentalized a lot when we learn about history and talk about it. And some of that is just kind of information management. Like, you can't always paint the full full picture, but it's really nice when the puzzle comes together. So that was our lovely letter from Gina. Thank you for those insights. If you would like to write to us, you should do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mistinhistory, at mistinhistory on Twitter, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. We're going to have good hair pictures from this one. You can also buy some mistinhistory goodies at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to uh, research a little bit about what we talked about today, you should go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. If you type Sutherland Sisters, and that's S-U-T-H-E-R-L-A-N-D, you will get an article called Top 10 Famous Female Sideshow Freaks, and they are mentioned in it. If you would like to visit us online, you can do that at mistinhistory.com for show notes and archive of all of our episode, episodes and other goodies. And we hope you do. We look forward to seeing you at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs>